Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. Coming up on the podcast, Wes Streeting, the Labour MP whose story has taken him from underprivileged upbringing in London's East End to now being the UK's Shadow Health Secretary, tells the story contained in his book, One Boy, Two Bills and a Friar. Joining Streeting in conversation is BBC Radio 4 presenter Justin Webb. If you want to listen to this episode ad-free and enjoy lots of member-only content from Intelligence Squared, just head over to our website, intelligencesquared.com membership, or subscribe to the channel on Apple Podcasts. And if you want to keep up to date with everything going on, including upcoming events, just sign up to our newsletter too to get all the latest news straight to your inbox. Now let's join Wes Streeting and Justin Webb in conversation. Hello, our guest today is Wes Streeting, the Labour MP for Ilford North since 2015. I've got to tell you a story about Wes Streeting briefly before we start. The other day I interviewed him on the Today programme and at the end of it, the microphone was left open. My colleague who I was presenting with turned to me and said, I really like Wes Streeting. And I, being a bit more savvy about these things, I've been doing it for longer than than my colleague. I, I stay mum because I know that microphones in studios are dangerous. But uh, look, it is a fact that people do like worth Streeting, and I suspect they're going to like him even more after reading this book. The book is One Boy, Two Bills, and a fry up. And then while growing up and getting on, and I'm delighted to say uh, that Wes is on the line uh, and on a particularly busy day too. But uh, hello to you. Thanks very much for sparing the time. No, thanks for having me on, Justin. And I've, I've always liked that Simon Jack. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going to name him, but there we are. He's out. <laughs> Sorry, um, Simon. I've done and, it again. And rightly done. Um, look, let's start with some... What? Tell us about the fry-up, first of all. It starts with the fry-up. Um, a full English breakfast saved my life, literally, because... My mum and dad were very young when I was conceived, sort of 17 and 18. And this was the fry up that literally saved my life because my mum had been booked in for an abortion. There was unanimous consensus across the family that that was the right thing to do, that this wasn't, you know, the right age, the right time to have a baby. And I think a few days before, she decided she wasn't going to go through with it. And so she did the very thing that she knew she wasn't supposed to do on the day of the procedure, which was to have breakfast. And she did that because she knew that my nan would hit the roof. Everyone would be furious. But if she'd had a breakfast, that was effectively the insurance against having to go through with the abortion. So, yep, uh, one boy is me, two bills are my grandfather's, and the fry-up is the fry-up that saved my life. My God, the family is extraordinary, as you as you describe them, not just your mum, who was plainly a woman of strength, and purpose and determination, but the rest of them too. Yeah, it is a, it, for me, that's been the, the slightly terrifying thing about writing this book is, you know, especially at this stage when we're talking in publication week, this is the point at which I kind of open up my life and my family to a wider audience. And in the last few weeks, I think all of us have started to feel that sense of nervousness and, and trepidation that, 
you know, these aren't just characters that are written in a book. These are real people with with real and quite extraordinary stories, which is why I've written the book. It's also one of the reasons, by the way, when the publisher first approached me, um, Hodder, my, my editor, Tom Perrin, to write the book, I initially said no, because I thought, well, these are sorts of books that politicians write at the end of their career. Unless this book goes really badly, I hope this isn't the end of my career. Yeah. And um, But it was also a question of time and and also exposure because as politicians we're not meant to show vulnerability and i've told some very personal stories in this book yeah i mean i, I when i read a book of memoirs i told very personal stories but i waited until everyone was dead to be frank who who could have been affected by those personal stories your your personal stories i mean there are people who are still around and and yeah. personal stories my goodness they go well they go to prison don't they yeah. they go to really awful things in people's lives give us a kind of sense of of the personal stories that you are now revealing and why you are. So the, the, the two bills are the grandfathers that in some ways epitomise the two very different but stereotypical East End families that I come from. One, my dad's dad, Bill Streeting, he served in the Royal Navy in the Second World War. He was a civil engineer throughout his entire life. He served king and country and loved queen and country. And he was a, not just devout Christian, but staunch working class Thatcherite Tory. He, um, the only time he voted anything other than conservative was liberal to keep Labour out, is that he was that kind of staunch Tory, upstanding, work hard, play by the rules, pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of guy. And then on my mum's side, Bill Crowley, her father, was in and out of prison with a string of convictions for armed robbery throughout my childhood, my mum's childhood, um, and in fact, his own childhood. I mean, his first encounter with the criminal justice system was at the age of eight. He was in approved schools and Borstal. I think his first his first job was trying to break into the Ballam branch of Woolworths. Um, and he had a very tough childhood, which is why he ended up in, in the criminal justice system, I think, in the first place. And one of the stories are sort of agonised about telling, really, and, and weighed up whether I should, was, you know, not long before he died, he'd revealed to my mum that he had been abused by his father physically and sexually. And I thought, you know, is this, is this, a, is this a story that should be told? And I thought, well, you know, he's no longer with us, sadly. And I thought, actually, we do need to break the taboo around some of these issues. And in some ways, I think knowing that helped me also to reconcile the man that I knew and loved, who was witty and clever and used to have arguments about religion. He was a staunch atheist about politics. He thought politicians were a bunch of crooks. In fact, I can almost hear him now saying, you know, you work with more crooks than I did in parliament. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but you you know you you know that about his childhood and suddenly everything else makes sense and his criminality makes sense not not that it's defensible per se but it makes sense uh, and you know it was a as a result of his criminality it had a big impacts on the wider family you know my mum was born in prison well not literally in prison but up the road at the Whittington Hospital my nan was in Holloway Prison because of her involvement with my granddad's dealings. And she shared a cell with Christine Keeler, who was at the heart of the Profumo affair, and they became lifelong friends. So I think when um, when my editor read some of these stories in The Times, um, an interview I gave to Rachel Sylvester when I came back from kidney cancer, I think this was what caught his 
tension. He said, look, you know, you've got to tell this story. And over a series of weeks and months, he coaxed me into it. And so if this goes badly, it's all Tom's fault. And if it's a roaring success, <laughs> yeah. well, that's all thanks to me and my <laughs> my family and my writing. <laughs> okay, so you're born into this family and it's tough. Uh, and yeah. I, I mean, tell us about, for instance, one of the things that, that really struck me, well, there are two things that really struck me. Um, one of them, just because I've got a, a dog that I'm very fond of, and the, the story of what happened with the dog. Oh, don't you? You're that, honestly, you'll make me cry. Oh, well, I, I did actually. Tears came to my eyes when I read that. But uh, let's start, let's leave the dog for a second and start with your fourth <laughs> birthday, which actually, I mean, in a way, should be making us cry more, but because of the way we are with animals, doesn't. But you're, you know, just, just give us a kind of sense of it, it's not the physical side of poverty always, is it, that, that really matters? It's, it's, it's something much wider than that, which you bring out in the book. I, I think that's right. Um, my fourth birthday, I think, was probably the first time I can remember where I realised that we were poor and poorer than the other kids. I mean, you know, the the nursery I went to it was full of kids from backgrounds like mine, but we, I mean, we, we, I felt like we were at the poor end of poor because, you know, every time there was a birthday, kids would bring in a cake or some sort of fun size sweets and we'd have a little party. And then my birthday came around and there was an expectation from my friends of oh, where's the cake and where's, when's the party? And then I sort of thought, well, I haven't, yeah, I haven't, I haven't got one. You know, my mum hasn't sent me in with one and um, you know, thanks to the kindness of the nursery teachers, they went across the road to the newsagent, bought one of those little uh, Victoria sponges you get in the box with the cellophane wrapping. And we had a birthday party and it was the first birthday party I could remember. They saved the day and spared my blushes. And it was really special. And I, I really wish, because I named lots of teachers, I really wish I could remember the names of all my nursery teachers. I remember there was a woman called Sue and a woman called Joyce. I really, I'd love to be able to thank them all these years later because they had no idea how much that moment meant to me. And, and what was also heartbreaking is when I was talking to my mum about that, you know, in the process of writing this book, you know, she said to me, oh, I didn't realise that's how you felt. And I suppose I could have gone round the family and tried to borrow some money, but when my mum was growing up, her birthdays weren't celebrated either. So it was almost, a, you know, she she worked really hard, my mum, and made sort of sacrifices to make sure I didn't go without in lots of ways. But I think that was a good example of how, despite trying her best to be a great mum, there were moments where, because of her childhood, she didn't really know what the dumb thing was. Mm. How's that the dog? Oh, so uh, fast forward 10 years and... Uh, one of my mum's friends was a dog breeder and he invited, I remember going out on this long drive into Essex, I think it was, to pick up this golden cocker spaniel, which my mum called Mishka, which I thought was a terrible name for a dog, but Mishka it was. And I loved that dog. And, you know, we had her as a puppy. She, she grew up with me. Every time I'd come home from school, she'd come running to the top of the stairs and, you know, in a flat that wasn't particularly nice or homely, the dog made it feel much more like home. And I wasn't allowed to play out really on our estate because mum mum didn't think much of the kids on the estate and thought I'd get led astray. So I was kept in a lot. So having the dog and being able to take the dog out for a walk really meant a lot to me. And then my mum fell pregnant with my um, oldest brother. He's 10 years younger than me. And during the night, I heard 
sort of after I'd gone to bed, I heard some voices out in the hallway, opened the door and found these guys who I didn't recognize carrying Mishka's basket and lead. And uh, I really, so I started to cry. It's ridiculous. 30 years later, I'm not really not over this, but um, uh, that I realized they were taking her away. And my mum in her, infinite wisdom decided the best way to handle this awful situation was to give the dog away and then tell me afterwards and I caught her in the act and I was absolutely heartbroken to the extent that 30 years later this still makes me well up um the worst thing of all was Mishka obviously knew what was happening because I sort of said my goodbyes and went back to bed and was just sobbing and didn't want to see my mum and when we first got Mishka, I'd spent, you know, the little bit of pocket money I used to get from my granddad on one of those squeaky toys that was shaped like a cake. And um, I was crying and sobbing in bed and Mishka came wandering in with this half-eaten, like, you know, falling apart rubber cake. And she just put a leapt up onto the bed with her front paws and just dropped the cake next to me and just wandered out the door. And it was like she was saying goodbye. And I just I can't believe all these years later. It's just like I'm in the middle of like crying and laughing at myself because I think it's totally absurd 30 years later to still be this affected by it. But I never saw her again. And, you know, I think she was went off to live with a woman who whose dog had recently died and she was bereft. So I know she went to a good home. But yeah. I was, and, and luckily I didn't, I didn't resent my brother because the reason mum got rid of Mishka was entirely reasonable. She thought, you know, I'm pregnant with a baby. That's another yeah. mouth to feed. And, you know, it's the baby or the dog. Intelligence Squared is a tight knit team doing big things. And it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks. That's why I want to talk to you for a minute about NetSuite. NetSuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving. Maybe your business has been humming, but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit. Or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, allowing them to close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. It means you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. It's everything you need to grow all in one place. NetSuite is now making an unprecedented offer to make more of that kind of thing possible. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com squared. Well, yeah, and 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 it's an, an, another issue about living in very straightened circumstances where you have to make these choices. And my God, people still do, don't they? And and every day, it's not a misery memoir, though, is it? No, it's not. And that's one of the things I really wanted to get across. Really, is I had a happy childhood. I really did. I mean, we went without things, and I describe all sorts of incidents or moments in the book of things we had to put up with. You know, whether it's the electric meter cutting out and not having any money, or the cockroaches we used to get from the neighbours next door and 
you know, there's the sorts of things and conditions that no one would ever want to experience for themselves or or certainly not for their children. Um, but I was happy. And my mum and dad, my dad has always been there for me in my life. So I spent I spent the second half of my childhood living with my dad. You know, in the I had this mum who was full of energy and we'd do the long walk from Stepney to Wapping, see my nan half an hour walk, and my mum would be sort of leapfrogging over the bollards and laughing as we went along and and you know, doing cartwheels in the park. And I just thought, how I always thought, oh, my mum's really cool. Like how many, how many other kids have got like a mum like this? Um, and at the weekends I'd see my my granddad, granddad streeting, and my dad. And I loved the weekends because you know, there, there was, they were, they were, they were a, a different sort of working class, really. Um, you know, they didn't have loads of money, but, but my granddad's flat was nicer. My dad worked really hard, got himself on the housing ladder by the time I was about 10. So I, I kind of had a window into a, into a different working class life. Um, and I loved the time I spent with them at the weekends. So it, it was a happy childhood. And I loved, I loved school. Um, and you know, being, be experiencing poverty it can be stigmatizing and make you feel ashamed. And I certainly felt that embarrassment. I couldn't have friends come round to play, or, or in fact, I could have done, but I was too embarrassed um, to bring friends round. So there were those aspects to it. But you know, when I think back, and when, as I was thinking back to my childhood for the book, I just had floods of happy memories, and I wanted to get that across because to be poor isn't always to be miserable. Yeah. Uh, what What is the impact of that then on your politics now, Wes? Because you, you just like me um, as, as someone, well, you obviously are, you're on the wing of the Labour Party that is less angry, if I can put it like that. And it's, some, it's fascinating that sometimes the most angry people on the left are sometimes quite upper middle class people. Yeah. And, and 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 the least angry. I'm thinking of Alan Johnson, who I had the great pleasure of. Going oh, I love with, Alan. Yeah, with, I mean, he's, he's a lovely guy, but you know, has never been an angry politician, and yet grew up um, in circumstances like yours, or, or possibly worse in in some ways in the 1960s. Yeah, absolutely. I must say, Al, Alan's a total role model for me. Actually, in fact, I made the mistake of listening to Alan's first book on. I'd read it already, but I was listening to it on on audio. When I started writing mine, I tell you to any budding authors out there, the worst thing you can do when you've got a blank word yeah. document and a book to write is listen to someone else's amazing yeah. book. Yeah. Well, I, I, I did exactly syndrome. the same thing, actually, although my child was very different. But I mean, I did exactly the same thing. And I think everyone does. He's going to write a memoir. But here's the thing the point about Alan, the point about you, you're, I mean, I don't like this word moderates, but you're, you're kind of, you're, you're both not angry politicians. Is that because you do know what? poverty is like and also what life is like and the and and the kind of the 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 elision of people's characters and personalities with the stuff around them and how that kind of meshes into who we are yeah i think there's something in that i feel like um in terms of my politics i mean my fundamental driving mission and the issue i care most about is how do you make sure fundamentally how do you make sure that kids from working class backgrounds like mine get the same choices, chances, opportunity, security as kids from the wealthiest backgrounds. And one of my frustrations, deep, deep frustrations with the Labour Party is that despite having been created to drive real and lasting change in our country, 
we have spent most of our existence, the vast majority of our existence in opposition, not in power. And I recognize, not least because of my family, and you know, most of my dad's side of the family were Tories when I was growing up, most of my mum's side, Labour, and left on the left of Labour as well. I do understand what motivates people, particularly working class people, to vote Tory. And I and I recognize what stops them from voting Labour. And so my politics has always been centre-left and recognising you have to build a tent big enough to get people inside and to back your vision for Britain and to bring about the change you want. Otherwise, you end up in righteous indignation, in opposition, utterly unable to change a single thing. And I think my life would have been better in the 1980s growing up if there had been a Labour government. And, you know, people will know either through um, direct observation or the history books what the Labour Party was like in the 1980s. No, And I think that let my family down. I really do. Um, and, you know, I, I'm angry about issues um, and I'm angry about the state of inequality and injustice in our country. But my politics is practical pragmatic, I want to roll my sleeves up and get things done. And that's how Labour wins. And that's how Labour delivers real change. And I I, I think we live in an, an age at the moment where people see things in such simple binary terms. And if there's one thing that comes out of the book in terms of the stories, the characters, the experiences, life is really complicated. People are really complicated. Um, and so I don't look at the Tories and I don't look at Rishi Sunak and his cabinet and think, you know, there's a bunch of people who come into work to plunge kids into poverty. What I do think is they're a bunch of people who don't know what life is like for most people and that impacts on their choices. So their choices aren't as good as they should be or they make bad choices or they make choices for, you know, with a set of preconceptions and experiences about who will benefit and what will make a difference because they don't know what life is like for people from families and backgrounds like mine. Yeah. It's really interesting, the point about complexity. I mean, you think of that when it comes to race, because you you are a white working class boy, obviously. Um, you got into Cambridge. Um, we, we focus a lot, don't we, uh, in the modern era on race, and in many respects, rightly so, and there's plenty of a lot of racism around. Do, do you kind of subscribe with that background in mind, with your book, thinking about your book, um, do, do you do you think there is such a thing as white privilege? Did you kind of did did you benefit from from white privilege? Does it mean anything to you that 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 phrase? I, I do understand the term white privilege, and it is true. I think objectively that even in Britain in the twenty first century, to be white is to live free from racism. And there are sometimes occasional object, you know, uh, exceptions to the rule um, and occasional comments that a white person might experience in this country, or maybe if they travelled abroad and were in an ethnic minority in another country. Um, but we don't experience racism. And that does create a form of privilege. And so the only thing I would say is, I think the term white privilege can feel jarring to people whose lives are not remotely privileged at all. And so that can create, ironically, sometimes an, an obstacle to engaging a wider group of people in a discussion about race who kind of really need to hear it. Because ultimately, 
the way we'll deal with racism in our country is for people to stop being racist. So, you know, that's on us <laughs> as as kind of white people to um, not just in terms of our own behaviour, but to challenge other people's behaviour. Um, similarly, with, with the issues we've got around sexism, misogyny. I mean, I spoke at a vigil the other day for Zara Alina, the young woman who was brutally murdered in my constituency a year ago. And like we... What really, really upsets me is that I talk to women in my borough and girls who've changed their behaviour because of sexism and, and where they go and what they do. And I think, hang on a minute, this isn't your responsibility to, to change because of misogyny and sexism. It's our responsibility as men and boys to change our behaviour and the culture. So, yeah, I, I think that there, there is absolutely a legitimacy in the term white privilege. Is it the most helpful term to get a hearing? with the largest number of people, um, I'm less convinced of that. Mm. The book, you, you mentioned right at the beginning of your book, um, getting cancer and and the kind of shock of that. The, the thing that really, I mean, there were two things. Let, let, let's deal with that, first of all. You, you have been, you, you have, once you've been to Cambridge and once you went into politics, um, you were kind of, you were fast-tracking your life in a way, weren't you? Just tell me psychologically what, how much of a blow, I mean, it's a blow for anyone at any stage of their life to suddenly get a diagnosis out of the blue. But you were young, you still are young, frankly. And Thank you, I'll my, take that. From my advantage point, you are. Um, but I mean, just just the juddering halt that it must have brought to, well, to all your plans, at least for the for the moments when you were thinking, blimey, this could be the end. That's a great way to describe it, juddering halt. Um, I always knew that I was going to be okay. It was caught early, diagnosed early. My prognosis was excellent. I knew I wasn't going to die, but it was terrifying. Um, I cried. Um, it was hard. Uh, so I'm breaking again. Uh, it, was, it was hard telling my partner and my parents. I think they took it harder than I did. Um, and watching them agonize about it was hard. Um, and then, you know, going through the experience, especially during COVID, it was incredibly lonely. I, I will never forget how I felt going in for first my biopsy and then for my operation and leaving Joe and my dad at the door of the hospital. It is the loneliest I've ever felt in my entire life uh, as I sort of sat in the cubicle waiting for the doctor and the nurse to come in. And as soon as they did, it was all straight into action and I felt a lot better. Um, I think... After the operation, that was the first time, probably since I've left school, that I've really stopped and had total rest. Because since I went to university, I, mean, I threw myself into university life. I worked every university holiday to pay my way through university. So other people went and had holidays and I just went and slogged my guts out, comet, and earning as much money as I could. And then straight out of university, straight into student politics, which I absolutely love, um, involved in NUS, National Union of Students. And then straight from that into a career in the voluntary sector and getting involved in local government and then standing for palm. So constantly like tape, seizing yeah. every opportunity I could and yeah. trying to make a difference. And, and it was the first time I really stopped to rest and reflect. And um, it, it, it definitely, I definitely came back to work if it's possible with a even greater zest for life and a determination to do even more and run even faster because um, you never know how long you've got. And as I say, my prognosis is excellent. I don't live in fear of cancer coming back. 
Um, it may, who knows, but um, I don't live in fear of it. What I do live with is a is a realization that despite being relatively young, you never know what life holds for you around the corner. You've got to make every second count and live each day as if it's your last. Yeah. And that then brings us back to the book, which, and that's kind of the, the whole of the book, really, and what it says about life more broadly. Just the, the complexity, the weirdness, you know, the Christine Keeler link that you mentioned, which is fascinating, the kind of oddnesses that happen, because that's that's what life is. I suppose. Yeah, and you know that I, I just wonder in our politics and in actually in all of our kind of national discussions, we are sometimes too we, we're putting people in boxes all the time, which you kind of have to do. But as you're reading your book, I just thought there isn't there isn't a box that I I want to put him in. And I just wonder the extent to which that's kind of also the point of, of writing a book like this. Yeah, I think so, and it's it's very much written for people outside the Westminster bubble. Um, I hope that people from my background read it. I mean, I've, I've, I've been struck as I've been doing quite a bit of broadcast this week on programmes that we don't often get on as politicians, <laughs> um, you know, like like Lorraine Kelly's programme and mm. even like, you know, BBC Breakfast, whenever I'm on, I'm being utterly grilled. So to sit there um, with Charlie and, and Nugger the other morning, it was a really lovely interview, much nicer than the ones I normally get from those two and you for that matter on the Today programme. Um, yeah, I was going to say nobody to watches get... morning TV. Whereas you're wasting your time, but anyway, it was lovely on. being yeah. able to talk to to them as a person, yeah. and 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 the feedback I've had has been wonderful. Partly, and lots of people who've identified with bits of the story, and this book really is for them. And I hope it also, in an age of kind of a lot of cynicism about politics and politicians, gives people a bit of a window into into the people. Um, and not just the politics, because for all of the cynicism, I still think most people across the political divide are in it for the right reasons. Do you? Really do. That's, a, that's, that's an interesting moment at which to, we've only got a minute or two, but that, that's a fascinating thought. And that does very much come across in the book. I'm not that you're writing about politics particularly, but you're kind of open to people's, to the reasons why people behave as they do and not necessarily blaming them as individuals. Yeah, I think that's right. And uh yeah, I genuinely do think that. I mean, it, it's not held by by the headlines about bullying, harassment, broken promises, lies, and you know the the really awful rough and tumble we've had in the eight years I've been an MP. But I genuinely think, looking around the House of Commons, I might disagree with people, I might question their decisions, but in the majority of cases, I don't question their motives. I think people are in politics; they want to make a difference and they want to leave their country in a better place and they found it. And I think politics is a noble calling. Uh, and I realise that is a hard sell against the background and backdrop of the politics we've had for the last eight years. But I'm a, if there's one there's one tone of the book, it is my eternal optimism. So <laughs> we'll get there eventually. Well, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. The book, normally at this stage, I would, I would hold up the book uh, which is called One Boy, Two Bills and a Fry of a Memoir of Growing Up and Getting On. But I can't hold it up, Wes, because my father-in-law has pinched it 
It's already, it's already fucked. Tell him to buy his own. Exactly. Um, I have to say, some of the books I get to review on American politics, he doesn't pinch, but he's yours, um, which is a, a good sign, I think. Anyway, it's available from your local bookshop or nick it from someone who's meant to be reviewing it. Um, that's a real pleasure um, for us, for all of us who've been listening. Wes, thank you so much for sparing us your time. Really nice to talk to you. Thanks, Justin. Lovely to talk to you. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared. This episode was produced by Connor Boyle and edited by Tom Hall. Do check out the Intelligence Squared newsletter to get the latest of everything coming up at intelligencesquared.com.